I'm Alex Mozed, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. So Walmart just released earnings yesterday. They actually didn't have that good of an earnings release. However, the stock still went up that following day. Uh, it was up by roughly over a percent. Today, the subsequent day, the stock is down roughly the same amount. And that is because Walmart additionally added guidance or provided guidance that they think the coronavirus is going to have a bigger impact on their business than they had initially thought, particularly in China, but also some supply chain issues. Um, so that is the primary reason why you see Walmart's stock being down. It's actually because of the coronavirus, not necessarily because they'd already released their earnings and, and the stock actually went up based on what they announced uh, in the earnings. Now, what did they announce in the earnings? Because there is actually some so-so news in this. So let's dive into this. Uh, on the show, I've been bullish for a while on Walmart, on their ability to be the number two dominant marketplace behind Amazon. And then that'll be a fantastic transformation for them. So a lot of these articles will say, hey, you know, Walmart has other competitors coming into the core business, like other grocers coming in. I mean, Walmart does a little over $500 billion in revenue. They haven't broken this out, but it's definitely, they're still definitely doing maybe less than $40 billion in e-commerce collectively. So it's best case scenario, 10% of their overall business, but I still think it's actually less than that. Um, so basically the core business is, is, is still reacting to um, new competition from other kind of traditional retailers or grocers that are, that are coming into different markets. But you know, the, the, there's a lot of news around that, that Walmart's U S online sales growth is expected to slow to about 30%. Um, this is basically, you know, for the, for the past few quarters, they had, I think it said expectations at around 36% uh, year over year growth. Now they didn't hit 30% in this past quarter. They actually hit 35% in this past quarter. So maybe they were a percent off or so they beat it by maybe a couple percent the quarter prior. Um, but what they're saying is, Hey, we think longer term, we think this will settle down to about 30%. Here's another chart that kind of shows this. So 2018, it was actually in the mid to high 40% growth. 2019, it was basically right at 40% growth. And 2020, you know, looks like it's at about 36% growth. And then they're saying 2021, it could get to 30% growth. So now Walmart hasn't really, you know, Walmart has said that they are doing maybe around 20 ish billion dollars in e-commerce revenue. Now they have a marketplace. We've stopped, we've covered that many times on the show about how um, they just added 10 million SKUs in the first nine months of 2020 and 9.5 million of those products came from third-party sellers. They definitely have marketplace dynamics going on. So roughly $20 billion in, in revenue from Walmart e-commerce actually should equate to a much um, uh, a much larger amount of GMV of total throughput. So even if you say that that's say 30 to $40 billion in, in GMV, um, even if it's $30 billion and you're growing at 35% a year, you know, you're adding, 
uh, say 12, you know, if it's 30 billion this year, you have 35% growth, you're at say 42, $43 billion the, the following year. That's nice. Um, but I think you want to see it uh, not trail off much farther than that, given that, that their base is much smaller than where Amazon is. So Amazon total GMV is about $270 billion. Walmart collectively is doing maybe around $520 billion in total revenue um, across you know, the majority being physical stores. So it's still roughly double the size in terms of total throughput of Amazon, but obviously all that $270 billion is digital demand. Um, when you talk about marketplaces, Digital demand is the key criteria to try to then back into how interested third-party sellers are to give you more inventory and to join your different programs. So Walmart also announced its own fulfillment service called Walmart Fulfillment, basically. Um, and uh, and and so now, or Walmart order fulfillment, Walmart fulfillment. I don't know, fulfilled by Walmart, something like that. So they've now officially launched this service. Um, they'd kind of used other partners in the past for this, but it looks like now they're rolling out more um, uh, services and more robust infrastructure to handle third-party inventory and to provide a kind of fulfilled by Walmart type of solution. Uh, so that was also announced in this past quarter. But let's go back to these growth rates. Let's compare it to Amazon. So when you look at Amazon's year-over-year -year growth, you can see here... Uh, you know, the highest they got was 22% growth in Q3 of 2017. You know, you go back to Q3 of 2016, it was 20% uh, growth. Um, these are the, uh, the, you know, dollar amounts of, of, of growth figures here. But um, now Amazon's growing on a much larger base, right? So if Walmart's only growing... 40% a year, but it's off of $30 billion base. And, and Amazon can grow at say 10 to 15% off of $270 billion, right? Um, you can still kind of see that Walmart still has a, a ways to go. Um, but I think that Walmart, I'm still, you know, the way I would think about this is one of the main kind of cheat codes that Walmart was able to use to really juice its online digital demand was integrating grocery into digital, right? So pick up in store. And now they're doing delivery of grocery into, into your home uh, and rolling out these membership services. That was the kind of hack or the integration of what's a competitive advantage and intrinsic asset locked up inside of uh, Walmart called People want groceries. It's about 40% of Walmart's business. And how can I now enable this online, right? Basically, that's Instacart's business is helping grocers to now enable, you know, pick up in store or, or delivery through Instacart. And their business has been booming as well. We saw Target buy shipped, uh, which to kind of basically do something similar around, around grocery. You haven't seen as much buzz out of Target compared to Walmart. But anyway, you know, bringing grocery online was kind of that trend. We saw um, Amazon buy Whole Foods, right? All these kinds of things in the grocery space. So doing that integration, that wasn't even marketplace. That was still linear. That was still just grocery products on Walmart's balance sheet. But now they're enabling them to be digital, basically, and tap into that 
that latent demand. Basically, they're channeling and kind of moving the existing analog demand of I go to the I go to a Walmart store and get my groceries to digital. So it's kind of from analog to digital. That's a nice example of traditional assets in Walmart now moving over to the to help the marketplace solve for demand. But it's not actually solving for supply. But what that demand is helping to do because you're now getting more customers using walmart.com to do groceries, now it's much easier to have those people now buy the rest of their products online as well. They're starting to change that user behavior. So that's a great example of now that you can start to have these other things in place, how can Walmart now go build out more capabilities on the supply side um, or on the fulfillment side to get a more broader product catalog? And that was exactly what Doug McMillan was saying on their earnings call on their last Q3 earnings call where he said, Hey, we added 10 million products in nine months. This is great. 9.5 million of these products came from third-party sellers. We need to move faster. Right? So they, they kind of have this window where they are juicing digital with intrinsic assets from the core business. Eventually those intrinsic assets are tapped out and this new separate business called the marketplace needs to stand on its own legs it's getting there. And so the question is, can you start to see that growth rate actually taper off or possibly actually go back up because of a base of say 30 or $40 billion of GMV? Um, they should be able to have consistently having uh, more than 30% growth if we're looking at 2022, for example. Um, but how can they now solve for supply? How could Walmart go and say lock up um, exclusive inventory, right? And I think if I'm a manufacturer, you know, this is what I'd be interested in, right? Like what are some really great products that Walmart customers love that they could then, now you could see these big marketplaces, Walmart and Amazon, basically competing over really branded, very recognizable inventory that you could only get at walmart.com, right? You can't get at amazon.com. I think that's another example of, of, of things that Walmart can do because they still do have double the amount of throughput that Amazon does. If they can now link the demand from the, from the in-store with the marketplace and then use that leverage with the manufacturers around locking up key inventory, you know, that's just one example is I think Walmart has more tools in the arsenal but they've got to start deploying deploying those tools to still keep growth, uh, online growth, growing at a heavy clip, considering that they don't have a hundred plus billion dollar business in online. I think they can do it, um, and I think they have the right team in place to do it. And I like the moves that they're making. So this doesn't shake my confidence uh, in their ability to pull this off. And um, you know, I still think it's actually from a, it's actually a great value play when you look at uh, what what the PE ratio is on, on Walmart, which is 22, 23. And then you want to compare that to Amazon. Granted, Amazon's doing a bunch of different things. Um, Amazon's almost 4X the PE ratio at about 94. So I think if Walmart can continue to show strong online growth and possibly maybe readjust upwards, right? What I, 
does that PE multiple increase as they can show that the online growth, the marketplace model is continuing to gain traction and continuing to penetrate? I think they're doing a good job of kind of setting investor expectations low and setting themselves up for the ability to outperform over the long term. So we'll see how that goes. Believe me, we'll be following it. In other news, not so good news, let's talk about Macy's. Someone that, a company that, you know, they've done good e-commerce. They're a top 10 e-commerce website. They're doing over $5 billion in e-commerce. It's impressive, but they haven't embraced marketplace. We covered maybe a couple months ago, we looked at the amount of clothes that you could buy on Macy's versus Amazon. It's not even close. It's like a hundred X difference. You know, if I can buy a few hundred thousand, say, uh, women's clothes on Macy's, you know, I, I can literally buy tens of millions of clothes for women in just say 10 categories of, of clothing, not even the whole women's department. Um, so it's not even close in terms of the breadth of product catalog. You're now seeing uh, Amazon roll out a bunch of, you know, friendly features around buying clothing and, 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 and being able to return it um, or, or even friendly financing options. You don't even need to pay for some of it. You can try it on without paying for it. And um, they're really juicing this model uh, of, of shopping online for clothing. And meanwhile, you know, Macy's is just taking the existing business model and putting it online. Surprisingly, with a lot of e-commerce demand, that if they did decide to open up to third-party supply and did, did allow for a more curated experience with a broader inventory, building out functionality specifically for that kind of clothing shopping experience. I actually think that they could do well in that space, but they're really not embracing the marketplace business model for whatever reason. Um, and so they're putting these plans into place to, you know, close 125 stores, which is about a quarter of their whole overall locations. And, and so they're doing all this to save $100 million. So they're going to basically lose, turn away $1.4 billion in annual sales, and they expect to save $1.5 billion. This is a, you know, by the end of 2022. So it's saying we're going to do all this stuff now, and in two or three years, we'll save $100 million. You know, Macy's isn't losing money, right? Like, they are doing, they did $5.3 billion in revenue. They made $50 million. That's in Q3. But if you look at Feb, so this is Q4 of, um, Q4 of, uh, of, of last year, right? Which they announced Feb of 2019. They had revenue of $8.7 billion. That's the big holiday shopping quarter. And they made $885 million in profit. So, and then the subsequent, they made 168 in profit. And after that, 158 million in profit. So it's a profitable business. They still have the ammunition to invest in true business model changes. They're just not doing it. Uh, and literally all the numbers are declining. Everything is red and a down arrow on these numbers. Um, now let's look at Farfetch. Farfetch doesn't even have a PE ratio because they don't make any money. <laughs> <laughs> you need earnings for the E to, for that to even qualify. They don't have it. They're still losing money. Um, from a financial standpoint, they did about $255 million in revenue in Q3 of 2019. And they lost $75 million. But that is not the full story. So again, 
Farfetch is a marketplace. They're in Plaid. Um, so they did in Q3, $255 million in revenue, but they did $492 million in GMV. And that was an increase of $182 million year over year. So it's about a 58% growth rate year over year compared to the Walmart growth rate, right? That's a lot of growth. That's significant growth. If Walmart had 58% growth, oh boy, you're going to see that PE multiple shoot way up, right? Um, so, but they're still losing money. But when you look at it, brass tax throughput revenue to GMV and you annualize this. Now, again, the holiday season should be higher, but let's just say if, if Macy's is doing about 20 to $23 billion in revenue annually, and let's say Farfetch is doing two to $2.3 billion annually, it's a 10th throughput wise valuation wise farfetch is valued at 3.7 billion dollars by the way far below far below where they ipo'd at which is a little which was like 27 dollars and macy's is valued at five billion dollars the company is doing one tenth the volume and is not even profitable and is worth about 60 percent the value of Macy's, right? Like what else do you need to do to say, hmm, there's something about this business model called marketplace where Farfetch doesn't take any inventory on their balance sheet, where it's all these third party um, designers and, and, and boutique shops that are posting inventory into the marketplace that the markets clearly, and, and they have the growth in that business model, you know, could Macy's, uh, Macy's, I mean, could try to, to acquire Farfetch, but there's also other boutique clothing marketplaces, uh, vertical specific clothing or sneaker or apparel marketplaces that Macy's could look at buying. And I think that's the best shot that they've got. I think you got to use the multiple that you have. Look at the stock price. This thing was uh, 70 bucks in in 2015, it's now 16. Stock price is going in one direction. It's called down. How can you go and really supercharge yourself with a marketplace model? You've got to buy. You've got to either buy another marketplace or you've got to buy some tools, some, some, some SaaS tools, some seller tools, some businesses that are really good at giving um, suppliers like clothing retail, you know, clothing manufacturers or designers or or boutique shops, you know, how can you kind of capture that supply and integrate it into your e-commerce experience and turn the e-commerce into a marketplace? You've got to embrace marketplace. It's the only shot you've got. You're closing down a quarter of your stores and you're doing all that to save a hundred million dollars. What else are you going to do to make up for the $1.4 billion in revenue that you just got rid of to save a hundred million dollars? You want to see growth it's in the marketplace. They're growing at 58% year over year. So we'll see. It's not easy. Look at Walmart. It's not easy, but it's certainly better than the alternative, which is they just got downgraded to junk bonds. And so now if I need to go do an acquisition, now I got to finance that acquisition with junk bonds because if I'm Farfetch or if I'm this other um, you know, clothing marketplace, I don't want Macy's stock. I want cash. 
Well, your your balance sheet, right? One of those, what what are the assets? What's that dry powder that that traditional incumbents can use to go and spin out new platform business models? One of those key assets is called the balance sheet, and the balance sheet for this business, I don't think it's going to look any prettier a year from now. Uh, so we'll see what happens there. Much more bullish on Walmart though. Um. And uh, let's look at, okay, let's look at content. So, you know, we've been asked this question is, well, platforms are winner take all. It's the name of the show. In the media world, though, we talk a lot about Netflix. We talk a lot about Disney Plus. We, you know, we talk about these streaming, streaming, everyone calls them streaming platforms. You know, let's call them <laughs> streaming services. I like that name much better. Um, there's no winner-take-all dynamic. You could have multiple winners. And the reason why is because the supply is actually very consolidated. So there isn't actually a lot of fragmentation, which means that there isn't a platform marketplace dynamic that you can capture all that supply. Why is, why is supply so consolidated? Because it's actually very expensive to create these films and these really high-end production TV shows and episodes, and it costs a lot of money. So it's a lot harder to have kind of independent content creators footing the bill with the hope of getting like an ad revenue share or some kind of revenue share, you know, based off of performance of your content. It just, it's a much higher barrier to create that kind of content, which means it's much more consolidated than you would see for this thing called user generated content. So in the world of user generated content, that does have winner take all dynamics because it does have platform dynamics, but we need to think about user generated content as actually existing in a bunch of different buckets. Let's think about what some of those different buckets are. There's a bunch of them actually. Think about like people that are contributing long form written content. Think about Wikipedia, uh, user generated content for an encyclopedia, basically. Think about blog posts like a medium right? That's kind of the, the watering hole for blogging. Um, let's think about like uh, user-generated content around places or, or restaurants or, or, you know, activities. TripAdvisor, Yelp. What about questions and just kind of general questions? Um, Quora. They have even Stack Overflow, which is specialized around like engineering and, and coding questions, right? What about um, more kind of traditional media, you know, uh, photos and videos. Well, now you have short form content like Instagram and Snapchat and TikTok. And Snapchat is kind of uh, also has a very strong messaging and kind of chat communication dynamic as well. It's not so much as kind of a, a one to many uh, maker model that we talk about exchange platforms and maker platforms. I'd say Snapchat the the content distribution is actually much more exchange where it's kind of one-to-one -one or one to a finite number of people that you're making and sharing content with whereas it's much more one-to-many on the instagram and TikTok. so you know how are these network effects actually being captured and that's where we need to think about from a winner-take-all dynamic you know that these are very different businesses and are actually in very different markets and you think about the users the consumers and the producers 
And you can also see how it's very different, both from the type of content that's being created and from how people are connecting and sharing that, that information. Pinterest is kind of its own, you know, its own vertical of, uh, of content platform with people pinning um, photos and different, you know, recipes or information and kind of doing it around these different themes. Yes, you're creating, it's user generated, but the way it's organized and the way it's curated is very different from all these other ones. Is that going to be a mass general content platform? Uh, I don't think so. But can they go very deep into, say, shopping and monetizing the the products that are now being pinned and curated? I actually think they've probably done less of a good job on that and going very deep into the niche that they own via the content platform than what the progress I see Instagram doing on shopping. I actually think Instagram shopping is doing a much better job than like Pinterest. Let's talk about social networks, user-generated content, Facebook. Oh, and then you have the professional version, LinkedIn. And then you have the gaming version, which uh, like Blizzard is doing. So you can, you know, have friend networks playing a bunch of different video games. We actually think there's room for a social network across every gaming platform. You know, Epic is trying to do its own social network for um, on on Epic games like Fortnite, right? But there actually isn't a social network that that has hit scale across all the different video games. Um, that that's kind of you know not manufacturer or video game creator specific, right? Owned by Blizzard or Epic, for example. Long form content, YouTube, streaming content, Twitch. Now you have Microsoft's Mixer that's getting into the game, right? So there are all these different content formats where um, where there is overlap, but what you see is that you're able to really capture supply in a very unique way. And then channel that consumption in a way that is representative of really that initial uh, piece of content that you're capturing or the way that producers are creating that content. So, you know, we see that basically in carving out all this own content, you can um, create content platforms that have a winner take all dynamic, but are still within their own industry. And, uh, and, and there's some overlap, but you can still have uh, a one or two key winners within these different verticals. I think there's actually other verticals within content that have not been tapped yet. And I think that's in the combination of traditional media meets user generated content. And you're kind of seeing this in TikTok where they now enable uh, songs. Now you can kind of do videos and derivative content based upon these songs that they get the licensing rights for. And now you can make videos around that stuff, right? That's the tip of the iceberg. You kind of see that derivative content theme in SoundCloud where you have kind of user-generated music that's now derivative or, or different you know, versions of music that's being created, right? You've seen this a little bit on the edges, this derivative content, but I think now you're going to be able to see that derivative content come into the video space. What happens if we were to open up these massive media libraries for all of these old, very popular TV shows and movies? What would happen if we could now enable that derivative content to be created and built on top of these very high-end video production? I think that's the next place you're going to see it. You could also see it on, um, on live TV or live sports, for example. I love watching Tony Romo commentate over football games. 
the guy can literally read the the play that's about to happen and 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 see it before it actually happens. But I would also love to pay a dollar a month to listen to barstool sports commentators commentate over football games as well, right? So derivative content on top of the traditional media asset of the football game. And Twitch actually tried this because Amazon gave them access to Thursday night NFL games. Twitch now let people like Ninja, when Ninja was still on Twitch, to commentate. And he had over 100,000 people watching him at the peak. Watch. Now you're, you're watching the football game live, but in, you know, in the little pip screen, you've got Ninja. And then Ninja's putting his commentary over the football game. That's exactly the kind of stuff that we have yet to really see is the traditional media and the user generated content and how these two things come together in the form of what I would call kind of user generated derivative content uh, on top of that traditional media content. So um, in other good news, I mean, the stock market's been doing really well, but Platt crossed a pretty significant milestone and it's actually just continued to to trudge along. So this is, this is plat, plat, the ETF, ETF comprised of 70 plus platform stocks. These are platform stocks that have a $2 billion market cap or greater. Um, uh, we collaborated with wisdom tree to help wisdom tree launch plat and we license information to them to help them figure out which companies are platforms or not. Um, and so Netflix is not in Platt, for example, and Walmart is not in Platt either because the marketplace dynamic is, is still a small part of their business. It hasn't crossed that threshold yet. Um, and it's global, but you have a majority of these companies are, are U.S. companies. China has maybe a 15 to 20% representation. So anyway, year to date. So this is just from Jan 1 of 2020 through um, now mid to late February you have about an 8.25% return. But if we go since inception, so this is from, uh, I think, May 22nd at launch 2019. So if you'd put $10,000 in, then you would have um, 12000 a little over $12,000 today. So it the milestone it crossed was that it's it, it has um, gained over 20% since inception, which was about nine months ago. So, um, yeah, I'd say when you compare that to the S&P 500 and other indices, you know, Platt is just firing on all cylinders. And um, despite, I'd say, the critique, you know, the common critique of Platt is that, you know, I, what I look at a lot of these P.E. ratios, right? P.E. ratios, that price to earnings ratio, the, the, the multiples that platforms get are, are much higher than traditional businesses. Like we were just talking about Walmart uh, and their P.E. ratio compared to Amazon or Macy's versus Farfetch. Right. Um, and I think the thing that you've seen over the past 10, 10, 15 years, and we will continue to see over the next 10 to 15 years, probably longer is that these platforms, once they hit that winner-take-all critical mass stage, which they usually, you know, if, if, you're, if you're over $2 billion in market cap, you've got a pretty good size uh, marketplace business that you can now start to really just compound upon that network that you've already amassed 
And now when you look at all the pl new platform companies that are being added in, right? We we just did a rebalance. We added in another handful of platform companies that went public this year, um, like Slack, Uber, um, Pinterest, Lyft, you know, we added in and, and a few Chinese ones. And, um, but what you see is that they're able to actually now when they get public and they can raise some additional capital, they're not even really trying to turn on profit. They're mostly in growth mode still. And then they're kind of transitioning into profit mode. And we've seen the public markets really ding platform companies, particularly I'd say since really the WeWork debacle in the fall, we've seen public markets really kind of ding these unprofitable tech businesses um, pretty harshly. The thing, and probably just out of a general fear that they could be another WeWork. But the thing on the platforms is that they're for real. And the multiples are, for, for the most part, deserved. Um, and that because they have these platform dynamics, because they have these network effects and these winner-take-all dynamics, they are able to justify those multiples because they can now have you know that top number one or number two slot. Um, so we'll continue to see how Plat does throughout 2020. I've got pretty high hopes and uh, we'll be adding, we'll probably be doing another rebalance uh, later on in the year as we have a number of other IPOs that, that I think are on the 2020 slate. But uh, for now, we'll just continue to track it and keep you up to date. So that's it for us today on Winner Take All. Thank you so much for joining us and I will talk to you tomorrow.